0: Hi, I'm Daniel Wordsworth. For more than 30 years, I've experienced war zones, natural disasters, refugee camps and sprawling slums. Now I'm going to show you a better and more optimistic world. This podcast is Finding Good.
1: Welcome back to Finding Good with Daniel Wordsworth. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Fitz. Uh, you can follow along. As, look, you've already found the podcast, so here's what you can do next. Hit follow or subscribe, share it with someone you know uh, and rate the show or review the show in Apple and Spotify, please. That helps us be discovered. Um, so we can share all the good stories and ideas and and optimism. Yeah. Now, in a previous episode a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about being held at gunpoint by the Taliban yeah. in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And then when they went away, you just went back to sleep, which I still find yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I still don't understand how you went back to sleep.
0: Well, actually... Some people have asked me about that because it does seem weird, right? Yeah. So I will say, I don't, I say sometimes ta- the Taliban was all over the place, and uh, but these guys didn't identify themselves. They don't have a badge, yeah. right? So they just surrounded us, shouting at us, trying to get us out of the car and hijack us. And yes, that was the B 52 bombers coming, going to drop bombs on you, and they ran off. Mm-hmm. The translator said that. And yes, I went back to sleep until we went into Kunduz. And some people so think, how could you, get how out could, how could you possibly? Like the adrenaline would be coursing through your veins. Yeah. You've just had a gun pointed literally at your face um, before. And I thought about it afterwards and I thought, how did that happen? And at first I think I even reacted to the question that you asked afterwards and I said, well, I was just like the way things were. And But then I thought about it. I thought, I don't think that's an adequate answer. And then I realised it's because I was frightened the whole time. Right. I was expecting that was right at that era where – you got got and then you got put into an orange thing and then people, you know, yeah. did videotape of you losing your head and I was was convinced that was going to happen at any moment. And so every night when we went to sleep, you know, I would be lying there thinking they're going to come crashing in, I'm going to get woken up, or every time we were in the car, every time we were in the refugee camp, I was always scared. And because of that, this was no more, it was what I was expecting to happen mm-hmm. And I was at a high level of adrenaline and fear the whole time, and so and I was managing to sleep, and so I just I was yeah. just in a fear bubble. I think so it yeah. became normal. It became a, normal normal yeah. state. What what a horrible normal
1: state to be in. <laughs> That's yeah. outrageous, isn't it? But why why were you in Afghanistan in the first place? You, yeah. You, I mean, there was a war going on.
0: Well, we yeah, we, I wasn't there <laughs> running run into a war zone. Yeah, I went, went into a war zone. This is where I discovered uh, actually a truism that I've used then, which is there's one thing harder than getting into a war zone, and this is connected to this uh, bit. This was after nine eleven, and so uh, the war was on. So the US is over there, everybody's over there, Taliban gets overthrown, it goes on for a few months, and we're an aid agency, and so we thought to ourselves, at that time I was in one called Christian Children's Fund, and there was the three of us that were in that organisation that were lovers of Afghanistan, mm. right? So often in my kind of work you have countries that you're like – really interested in yeah. and for me Afghanistan was that and there are actually three of us that had a real passion for Afghanistan, my boss and a, my co-worker Christy and so we thought um, this is our chance, right? We're going to go in and uh, <laughs> right during that war period, we're going to go in and provide aid and assistance into Afghanistan.
1: What, what is it that drags you to the country when you say you know you, you become focused on one country? Why
0: Afghanistan? It, to me it was just... Was uh, a ground, sorry to use the term, but was a ground zero for like where everything was happening? At that moment, it was ground zero where everything was happening, but I'd tried to go in there twice before, and every I tried to go in there twice, and every time I tried to go in, a war broke out, and so I couldn't get in. So I, I can't really explain it this way. There's just something... Afghanistan is like this rugged, mountainous, harsh, also magical, brave, scarce... Punishing for children—it's it, horrible. Like, so it's all this stuff is there. I mean, maybe it's like the NBA final, like it's like the grand final, <laughs> right? The the finals, right? NBA finals for
1: humanitarian workers. work, like that. It's like
0: <laughs> that, right? So you're like, I want to do. You remember, I I see my life as trying to work with the poorest people in the least. I just see myself that way, and so I'm always we're trying to get to the front line of the need. Hmm. And in this case, it's it was literal front line. And uh, this was around Christmas of 2001. We managed to get one little team over and we put them in hibernation in there. If you look at the map of Afghanistan, there's this little piece that touches China. It's right in the far corner and it's yeah. like this isolated enclave. We managed to get three people there, and but the war was going on so we couldn't get them out and they were hibernating. I was going to go over there, get into the northern part of Afghanistan, bring the team of three down, and we would be four of us, and then we'll start our work. And... Uh, A lot of aid workers were going into Kabul at the time, which is like central part of Afghanistan, and everyone was going there, and we thought, no, we're not gonna go where everybody's going. We wanna go to the northern part. So there's like the... um, (laughs) We don't wanna go
1: where everyone's going. There's the
0: Panjshir, (laughs) which is like, there's this giant mountain range that's between Kabul and the northern part of the country that's sort of um, called the Hindu Kush, Kush, Yes. Yeah. which means the killer of Hindus, yeah, because it's tough. And above that is this big plateau. And for many years, this is where the Taliban fought the Northern Alliance. The Northern Alliance were like the rebel group inside Afghanistan and the Taliban, and they were fighting right in the far north between these two cities of Kunduz and another city called Talakan. And the front line for nine years was between those two cities. And so we thought, we'll go up there and no one else will be up there and we can provide humanitarian work in that environment. So I went into um, the country above it called Tajikistan, Yep. And then I thought, I'm going to go into Tajikistan and then I'll cross the border into Afghanistan and I'll drive down to Talakan. And Talakan, uh was the safest place to be out there because it was sort of held by the Northern Alliance and uh, it was sort of more friendly to the West, mm-hmm. if you like, and we thought we'd base ourselves there and then we'd work in Kunduz, right? Because Kunduz was the place where, if you remember Chris Walker spanning, you know, the American Taliban and the CIA got, got killed. That was all happening in Kunduz. It was mm-hmm. the stronghold of the Taliban in the north. Stronghold in the south was Kandahar. Stronghold in the north was Kunduz. And so we thought, we'll go and work in there, Yep. Yeah. And so I went, flew over on Christmas Day, first couple of days, got down to the border. Now, that part of the border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan was actually managed by Russians of all things, right, right? Russian border guards. And when I got down there, they'd closed the border because the war's going on. Yep. Yeah, so they're you like, can't just get you in. can't come in here. Yeah. yeah. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, I've come all the way here and I want to go in there. And so I, the town right on the border in Tajikistan is called Fahor, And then I went into Fahor and I talked to my sort of – you have people that help you, right? So we had a logistician in Tajikistan and I had this person, Christy, who was in uh, the headquarters who's like calling me up. And I'd say, let's problem solve this. How am I going to get into Afghanistan because I want to go in there? We have to do something. And so we decided – we learned that there was a little airfield on the outskirts of Fahor. We decided I'll go there and see what's happening. So, I get to this airfield and discover that this is a Northern Alliance airfield. Mm -hmm. So, it's like an Afghan airfield. And what they were doing is they were like doing the convoys or sending helicopters in to the northern, different parts of the northern part of Afghanistan, shipping in ammunition or shipping in food supplies to soldiers, uh, taking in uh, pay, all these different things. So, they were servicing their military. So, when I got to the airfield, there's all these military, you know, there's old Russian style helicopters. And so I turned up there and I said, um, will you take me into Afghanistan? And the commander said, no, I will not take you (laughs) into what? No, I'm not taking you into Afghanistan. And so I was walking away and one of the other Afghans comes up and says, I can get you into Afghanistan, right? Then I'm like, what? So he said, it costs $500 for a ticket, ticket. Yeah, so <laughs> I said, okay, I'll buy that ticket, and then he get, the, and get then, points with that. Yeah, <laughs> no frequent flying miles on Northern Alliance uh, helicopters. So, so he goes, I'll get you in, but while the commander is here, we can't smuggle you on. So we have to wait until the commander goes himself on a helicopter somewhere, and then we'll throw you on a helicopter and we'll take you into the northern part of the country. So I said, okay, how long could it be? And this is winter time in Afghanistan. This is December two thousand and one. It's pretty snowy. It's like. Very snowy and it's freezing cold. So at, I would spend the night in Fahor and I was sleeping in this room with 10 other Tajiks. Actually, what I didn't mention is what I was carrying was a satellite telephone mm-hmm. to communicate with my teams around the place, the Christie and this, yeah. uh, and $10,000 in cash. So oh, I had, oh, had $5,000 and $5,000 and I had them both stuffed in my boot. Right, And I had my little bag with my clothes. So I had my phone, 10000 in cash, and my little bag. Yeah. And so every night you, I, you, I would...
1: You're like a dream for a bandit. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I'm,
0: I'm sleeping there all night long with these 10 Tajiks and I'm thinking as long as I don't come and check under the pillow because I would try to hide the money. Mm. But every day I would go out and I would go in the morning and I would sit there and I would sit there all through the day till the end of the day and wait to get a helicopter. Five days, nothing. But what I learned over that five days was that the helicopters fly to six locations. Now, this was good and bad. One of those six locations was where I wanted to go. The other five I did not want to go. Right. And three of them were life-threatening. So right. <laughs> what we discovered is one route was going to Telukon. That's the place I wanted to go to. And I, I, I found out that's in about an hour and a half, two-hour helicopter flight. So I'm like, can you guarantee my ticket? Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, it's top secret. We never know. We won't tell you where the helicopters are going. Oh, no. You will go to one of these six locations. So right. that's forced me to then say, well, what are these six locations? Yeah. Where am I going to end up? Now, one of them was to that place, Faisabad, right up in that corner, which wouldn't have been, it would have just been very inconvenient, right? up <laughs> stuck near China. Yep. Another one was um sharif which is not so bad, but one of them was Kunduz, the places we wanted to go. But I knew at the time that the Taliban and the war was that it was all still happening there. Yeah. And so if they took me to Kunduz and dropped me off, I would be gone. Like they'd leave me there and then I'd be standing there and the Taliban would come out, grab me and I'd be gone. Yeah. Then the other two options are even worse than Kunduz. So oh, one see. of them was you could see on the airfield, you could see the fence, which is a border fence. There's a thing called um, the Panj River right on that border. Mm-hmm. And there was a fence. And what would happen is these camel trains would come to the fence. You could see them. There's like 30 camels. Yeah. And they would fly the helicopter just over the fence and they would distribute supplies and the camel train would take it out to soldiers that are in the remote locations. Right. But these guys, these camel trains, these are like random guys. And so they were like, we may drop you there, but if we drop you there, these boys, they may do you know, rude things to you and bad things and there's no guarantee that they'll even take you and you may just be stuck on the other side of the fence in minus 20 degrees alone. Right. Best case. Yeah. Yep. Worst case, something else. Yep. Then the other one was the actual border town that was on the Afghan side and, again, it was just like if I landed there, I'm all by myself, there's nothing and I've got... So it was like I could go one in three, Kunduz really bad... Uh, over the fence, super bad, uh, the border one, quite bad, and then the other three, whatever, but one of them, good. Then I thought, <laughs> the odds are worth it. Oh, okay. Right? So I yeah. thought I would... want me
1: not to go to the casino. Me.
0: With me, yeah. <laughs> well, it turned out okay, actually. So I'm sitting there on the fifth day. One of the guys comes running out. Actually, two of them come running out. And I'm just sitting there on my little bag waiting to go, and they grab me and they go, the commander just took off. Here's your chance. And they both grab me by the shoulder and they were dragging me out. So I was just like dragging my feet and there was a helicopter that was winding up on the airfield.
1: Why were they dragging you? Because they looked like a prisoner or?
0: I don't know whether they were like, it was in a rush. Right. And so they ran me out, the door opens up, the load standing there looking at me through the door, they both grabbed me and they literally threw me through the door, <laughs> threw my bag after me and, and as, as I scrambled up, I just said to no one in particular, where's it going? <laughs> <laughs> and the loadmaster smiled at me and said, "It's secret." <laughs> and then they closed the door, and I sat down. And well, and I'm they- about to find out. I'm so. about to find out. Yeah. But what I did is, I'd mapped out over that five days how far each thing was. So if I was going to go over the border, that was like a two minutes flight. Mm-hmm. So I thought, if it only goes for two minutes, I'm doomed. Yep. Mm-hmm. If it goes to the border town, that's like five minutes. That's also bad. If it goes to Kunduz, it's two and a half. So I had this. So I was just clocking everything as I'm yeah. sitting in there. And I didn't get the two minutes, and the so I, I was relieved. But in the helicopter in front of me is this enormous loading bay on crates, these giant square sort of boxes covered in tarpaulin. And as we're flying along, I had my feet up on the side of it. And the loadmaster's watching me the whole time. And when I caught his eye, he winked at me and, and sort of did this gesture and pointed at the boxes. And he's looking at them and so I looked at them and he's like, he gives me this signal like lift up the uh, canvas, see what's under there. So I lift up the canvas. It is money. It is cash. It's just like, you know, you see those movies where they smoke like giant yeah. piles of millions upon millions of dollars right. stacked up in all these cargo containers. Like greenbacks, American dollars? Yeah. Wow. The whole helicopter full of uh, you know, pallets yeah. of money. So anyway, we land. And as, as we land on the ground, um, we chop her into this town. I'm not fully sure what it is, but I remember I was meeting my team and the guy that I was meeting was a guy called Dollar. He's an Indian aid worker, an old friend of mine. We worked for the same. And he, I was, we were bringing him down and I wasn't sure if he could meet me in telecom, but that was the goal. And the helicopter lands, they open the door and they, I say, where is it? And they just don't tell me anything. They shove me out the door and I'm standing there. And then the helicopter beats up again and goes. And it's really only at that point did I think, as I watched the helicopter depart and I'm in a random Afghan city and I'm not sure exactly which one it is, I thought to myself, if it's this hard to get in, how on earth am I going to get out? (laughs) But thankfully I hadn't thought about that problem until that moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And I That's turn a ra- tomorrow problem. That's a tomorrow problem. <laughs> yeah. And the, so I turn around and I hear my name being called Daniel and it's Dollar. He's there. So I was in Telecom. They looked after me. I was in the right place. Hey, where was the money going? I don't know. What was the money for? Who knows? He didn't ask those questions. I didn't ask them. Well, he couldn't speak English. He's just winking at me the whole time, pointing and got this maniacal grin yeah. on his face the whole time. I mean, he knew, like I knew, this was an yeah. unusual experience. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to have all this money there but um, anyway so we were there so what were we trying to do so we thought the next day we thought we're going to go in and there's a over that time dollar had met this guy from the un uh, actually from iom who was called fernando and he'd been hibernating also up in this area and he used to run this refugee camp on the outskirts of Kunduz. it had twenty thousand people in it and he used to be the like, camp manager there and he's a filipino guy and he'd, he wanted to go back. And this was the first chance to go back. And so we said, we're going to go with you, me, Dollar, and him. We'll take a vehicle and we'll go to this refugee camp and we'll start providing assistance in this refugee camp. And so uh, the next morning we did it. We all pile into this uh, Jeep. This is the same Jeep that about two weeks later we would get carjacked. Right. In, right? But we go in. This is the one that I've also told this story that the first day. So we drive all the way there. We're crossing over the front line. They're not fighting anymore because the Taliban is is no longer really fighting in that way. We go into Kunduz. There were the American Delta guys with the big beards on the quad runners. They were racing around in Kunduz. And we knew we had the daytime that we could be there in the refugee camp before the Taliban comes out at night. And uh, we went to this refugee camp. That was the one where we pulled up at the gate. And right as we pull up at the gate, come in the opposite direction with two other aid workers in a Land Rover. Yeah, that was that moment. So I'm like, after all this, someone else is already here. Someone's here at the same moment. <laughs> yeah. right? this is what I said. I was bronze. I thought this is the time that I right? get there. First. I get there first because <laughs> yeah. I'd gone through a lot to get there. Yeah, and there they were. These two. Uh, they were from an organisation called Merlin, and we decide what we're going to do is we're going to, um, we're going to because we're a child-focused organisation. We're going to help kids. So we all sort of passed all things up, by all five of us. Yeah, yeah. Camp of 20,000 people. We were going to help kids. The UN guy is going to do things like shelter and basic provisions and try to get those in. And the two Merlin people were, were a medical nurses, and so they were going to set up a clinic. And so we all sort of divvied it up. And what we were going to do was create little schools. We've done this in many sort of emergencies. They're called child-friendly spaces. So what you do in a really sort of dangerous environment for kids, you create these mini schools, you bring children in during the day, you provide education to them. But What you're really doing is getting to know the child, getting to know the family and you use that as a sort of entry point into helping the entire family. Right. But the way children develop is the most important thing for children, and we talked about this in another episode, is the spiderweb idea that that children live in a sort of cluster of relationships and if those relationships are protected, they don't experience trauma in the same way. And so when you create a school, you get a teacher in there, you get their friends in there, you're reestablishing relationships. So that was our goal. And then we thought in a camp like this, we just did rough math and we thought Mm -hmm. we're going to do ten schools We had to get therefore, 20 teachers. Normally when you set up a child-friendly space, you take teachers from the refugee community because refugees have all types of all people there. Of course. Yeah. In Afghanistan, not so much. At that time for uh, nine years, no women teachers are taught anywhere. No, the Taliban wouldn't allow it. Yeah, wouldn't allow it. And so… We went into town and we asked, is there a ministry of education, like state <laughs> ministry of education? And someone said, there is a state ministry of education. So we went there because we had to get teachers mm-hmm. and the schools weren't going. And we went to visit. And uh, it was both remarkable and sad because we're taken to this large building. There's a little guy standing at the front entrance. We said, can we speak to somebody here? And they said, well, the minister for education is here. We right. thought, well, that's amazing. Yeah. So we get taken up into this room. The whole place is empty and in the room of the minister of education it's dark because there's no electricity there's one guy sitting there in a little gray suit one desk Mm. and him and nothing else like literally an empty room because he had nothing not even a pen (laughs) so we walked up and he's like how can i help you and he's trying to be the he is the minister and he was doing his job best he could and he said, what do you want? And we said, we w- we want to set up these schools in this refugee camp. We need um, – we're going to set up 10 schools. We need 20 teachers, two people per school, two teachers per school. And we said, we want them to be mostly women. And he said, here's my deal. I'll give you all those teachers but my deal is this. Some men must be involved because no teachers are working. Everybody need, people need a salary. Yes. So I'm going to give you 20 women and I'll give you four men – because I also want you to open up two classrooms in Kunduz town. So I get it, you want to do the refugee settlement, yeah. but you should also do one in the town or two in the town, so I'll give you four teachers for that, so 24 teachers. So we said, great, deal, tomorrow morning. Yeah. So we turn up tomorrow morning and there they are, the 24 teachers. We spent three days training them on how you work with kids in these kinds of settings. At the same time, we had the community putting up the tents to create these little schools. So you put them up all over the refugee camp, mm-hmm. these big tents. We source those in the town using the $10,000. The so two thousand bucks from you. Yeah, that was all we all I had was the ten thousand. Right, yeah. so we're doing all this is on ten thousand yeah. dollars. Think of how many schools you could have built with all the money in the back of the helicopter. I didn't think about that at the time. I should have taken <laughs> one of the pallets. So we um, uh, they had they had guns. <laughs> they may have resisted that. So uh, we were setting up all these uh, tents in the refugee camp, and we were repainting these two classrooms in what used to be the girls' school of Kunduz, but it had been used by as a barracks by the Taliban. And uh, we were repainting it. And uh, then the day came to open it up. So it's me, Dollar, and Bayan, the translator that talked about B52, three of us, and we had these 24 teachers. And the morning came where we were going to open all the schools. And we didn't know what was going to happen exactly. Because in a refugee camp of 20,000 people, there's a lot more kids than there are 10 schools. There there may be 1,000 kids per school. Wow. And it's only 10. Yeah.
1: And and also two teachers.
0: And two teachers (laughs) in that area. So we thought, and so the day came. And uh, from Talakan, we drive into Kunduz. Now what had happened is overnight a huge blizzard had fallen. Snow was deep everywhere. We pull up in this, we had rented this little bus. We pull up in front of these 24 teachers are waiting under this awning. The snow is so harsh it is coming horizontally in front of us. It's freezing, the snow is blowing, the blizzard is still happening. And uh, we said to these teachers, look we don't really know what will happen. We're going to have to take you out to these locations, but we don't know what's going to happen when we take you there. We actually can't go with you because the two classrooms in Kunduz were the ones that we were most concerned about. There'd been a news story that this was the first time female teachers were being put right. back into teaching and so there was a little bit of a spotlight on us. Yes, And so we said we need to stay in Kunduz just to make sure everything's okay here. So we're going to send you by bus to the refugee camp. We don't know how many people will wait, how many kids will be there. And uh, you're going to have to just deal with it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's snowing and it's freezing. It's too late to talk to the community so the kids are all coming. So we have to be there. Are you willing to go? And these 24 teachers all shouted out three in three times, yes, yes, yes. And the the female teacher said, "We've been waiting nine years to do this," hmm. and so we sent them out. I, and I was standing in this classroom in Kunduz, at the gate, thinking no one's going to come. It's snowing, and then just out of it was like one of those classic moments. Just out of the snow come the little pairs of kids holding <laughs> each other's hands, little backpack. This whole chain of these kids coming up the street, going into this these two classrooms. And we, then we ran that. What happened along the way was when we had these 20 teachers, they were willing to do anything but they said, here's the one thing. There are many young people in their teens and they've been fighting in the war. They're like child soldiers. They've right. never been to a school. They've been fighting in the war and they are heavily armed and we're very scared. So if you set up all these schools, if these people come, we're not going to teach them. right? If a 17-year-old comes with a Kalashnikov, we're going to have to turn them away. Yes. So we said, okay. So they said we just want to focus on 8-year-olds to 12-year-olds or 13-year-olds. So we said, okay, that's no problem. So we started these schools. Then one day we're running, opening up new ones. One day one of our team visited a site called Imam Sahib, which is a flat plain and it was so windswept that you couldn't put up tents. You had to dig holes in the ground in the frozen earth and you put the school in a deep hole in the ground. You put a little stove in and you covered the top up and it got covered in snow. And so all you could see around this giant windswept plain were these little pipes coming up with smoke. Because <laughs> the refugees are living there, but also our schools were. And we came, one day we came up and there were a whole pile of AK 47 Kalashnikovs stacked up in front of one of our little schools. Mm-hmm. And the person went down and was like, I, This is exactly what they told us not to do. And he ran down and said to the teacher, What's happening? And she said, Look, I'm sorry. I know I see the other kids in the morning between eight and 12. But these young ones came to me and they said, we've been fighting in the war, we've never been to school, we can't read or write. Would you just stay for an extra hour at the end of every day and teach us how to read or write? And so she said, okay, we'll do that. By the end of three months, we had 70 of these schools set up and we had 20,000 kids and former soldiers attending these little schools every single day. Wow. And it was all started with $10,000 stuffed down two boots. That you yes. smuggled into the country. So sort I of smuggled in, yeah. So I, th- I think you, and it was that was when we were carjacked on one of the days when we we're sort of right. going into that area. But it, it's why I don't. It's all of these things are what adds up to me about why you can do more than you think you can do. Yeah. It's always shocking. It did, it doesn't mean that we just used ten thousand dollars only. We found a pipeline. We managed to get other money in. We managed to do all this other stuff. But it, it all started, got started with those two piles of cash.
1: That's wild.
0: Mm. The the child soldiers. I'd imagine they were, that wasn't their choice to become child soldiers. It was necessity, right? I was sitting in there, I was going to, at one stage, go and negotiate with this warlord called General Barriolai. In order to be in that city, you had to get permission. So I was going there to negotiate with this guy called General Barriolai, who was a representative of Karzai sent there to sort of take over the town, like right. the local warlord. And I had to negotiate with him. So I was going to visit him one day and I was sitting in the anteroom, like just a little room you wait to go mm-hmm. and see the boss. And I'm in there, Bayan is in there, and these two amazing guys, like in their 20s, like out of the movies, yep, just the pushtun Afghan is an incredibly handsome person. Yep. Craig, big bush, and these two guys are sitting there. Big bushy beard. Yeah, it? and it's like all fantastic. And um, I'm sitting in the room and gazing around <laughs> and these two guys are looking at me. And then one of them says, um, are you happy? One of these two Afghan soldiers. Are you happy? And I said, um, i got to be honest with you. I'm not always the most sensitive person. I said, i got to be honest. I've never been happier in my whole life. <laughs> I've spent years trying to come to Afghanistan. I'm in the middle of my whole thing. This is exactly what I live to do. This is exactly where I'm meant to be and what I want to be doing. I'm so happy you wouldn't believe it. (laughs) And then I paused and then I said to that guy, even though I was worried all the time I'm going to get the chop, Mm. but he was asking. I also was happy. And then I asked him, what about you? Are you happy? He looks at me for quite a long time, just looks at me. And then he says, um, we have known nothing but fighting. I started fighting when I was 12. Mm. All of the young people from my village were forced into the battle. I'm the last one of my village still alive. I've known nothing but war and death, nothing but that. What do you think? You think I'm happy? (laughs) Yeah, right. There's a lot of reasons why people come up, but they weren't happy. And what do you say to a person when they say that? No, I get that. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And then, sorry for being such a jerk and saying I'm happy, but yeah. 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 (laughs) Wow.
1: Well, now we know how you got into Afghanistan. (laughs) Did you get out? Obviously, you got out. That's a stupid question. Did you get out? (laughs) I got out.
0: Uh, I got out.
1: Were you smuggled out or were you able to walk out?
0: I waited until the UN started flights. So then they opened up flights in mazar sharif mm. and then you could get out. How long were you there for? Uh, it's, it was only a matter of weeks. We didn't, I, I you, you go didn't back. start 20,000
1: kids at school in weeks.
0: No, because no, then the, uh, the waters would open up and we'd okay. start bringing in other team members. We had the guy that was the, logis- the, the logistics guy and he came in and then we brought in. It's like you create a beachhead and then you start bringing in resources and other people and you start, you know, creating a base and you sort of build up around that. Is there any particular school or community from that
1: experience that really stood out for you?
0: Yeah, actually, there was one moment. What happened one day? We were met by this young guy. We were visiting one of these little schools. The Afghans call them little schools. Mm-hmm. They didn't call them children's, but they call them little schools. And uh, we were visited by this young guy, and he had this like letter, it was sort of dirty, smudged, and it was all written in Farsi, Dari, the language. And what was really distinctive was there was about 20 thumbprints on the bottom of the letter. Right. So we turned to one of our translators and we said, what does he want? Yeah. And the the young fellow said, we heard, in our village, we heard that there was somebody creating these little schools and we have never, ever had a school in our village. And we heard that there was this group creating these little schools and we were afraid we were going to miss out. (laughs) So we sent you this letter and that letter says, will you come to our village and do one of your little schools? And I said, what are the thumbprints? And he said, well, no one, we've never had a school, no one can read or write and uh, that's the signature of the shura, like the elders of the village. And then we thought because we were being too smart, we go, well, how'd you write the letter then? (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes, oh, that took me so long. What do you mean? He said, because no one could read or write, I would have to run from village to village. And he said, I spent the last week going village to next village, next village, trying to find somebody who could write. And then finally, (laughs) after one week, I found someone who could write. And I asked them, write down for them, come and do the little schools. And then I brought it back to the village and the Shura all signed their things and I brought it to you. And then we looked at him, both it was Alex's, and we looked at him and he said, will you come? This is one of those great moments, right? <laughs> this is one of those times where you think, why would you do all this risk? It's because in that moment you can say, we will come, yes. Yes. It's so, it's, go back to your village, tell them we'll be there in the next two days. And then you go and do it. Big you know. smile on his face. Yeah, he was happy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was happier, but he was also happy. Yeah, yeah. brilliant.
1: Daniel, thank you. We'll be back again for another episode of Finding Good. You can go to the website, danielwordsworth.com, where you can ask questions. Please follow along, subscribe, Apple, Spotify, share it with your friends and rate and review the podcast, please. Uh, This has been Finding Good. Talk to you soon.